and welcome back to The Good Download. This has been a year of big news, but I'd argue that there's no issue bigger or more important to our work than the one we're talking about today, sustainability. We'll be chatting about the bold creative ideas from our advertising industry that will help ensure the future of our planet. And I'm joined by two very special guests. Annie Morton, one of our strategy directors, and Daniel Webb, our business director. I'll kick off with our first question. We had Earth Day quite recently, and there were a lot of brand campaigns launched then focusing on eco-commitments. Was there any that stood out to you in particular? I'll go on that one because I was quite busy on Earth Day and so I guess I was experiencing it through the brands that I am already connected with. So things I subscribe to, places I buy from a lot online. And I think the thing I noticed most this year was that I really noticed when brands that I expected to do something around Earth Day didn't. So two examples, I subscribe to Pack Coffee just you know send to you a choice of coffee every month and they're lovely and they're very sustainable and very committed to ethical trade silence and I actually thought at the end of the day how weird that Pact haven't done anything and I actually went on their website just to see and they hadn't they didn't do anything last year either so that was odd whereas Thought Clothing who are a sustainable ethical clothing company do a lot with hemp that kind of stuff uh, who I've bought from for years had done a really good link up with a podcaster. They'd done five tips. They'd done a partnership with the Eden Project's own charity to plant five trees for every order over the three days. And it was like, yeah, absolutely. That's why I expect from thought. So it was kind of a black mark for PACS. For me, it wasn't actually a specific campaign that stood out. It's more just the fact the sheer number of uh, net zero commitments that have come out mm. to the point where so I actually sign up to I think it's ED or EDIE sustainability website it's probably one of those things where I've pronounced their brand wrong so sorry <laughs> it's just been a barrage of net zero kind of commitments over the last six months to a year and it's all kind of just merging into very similar stuff so I have to say that Earth Day I was very aware that it was happening but you know not much really stood out because it was just here's my big commitment this is what I'm doing and yeah it just felt a lot of like similar stuff very good commitments don't get me wrong very noble commitments but you know that felt like what um, is a bit of a barrage of that to be honest. Yeah and that's a really interesting point Dan because I think particularly this year one thing that's really struck me as standing out is really what people have to do to cut through there's been so many conversations about sustainability and to actually get people to really engage with it and take action you need to have some really great commitments but you also need to be able to talk about them in a way which is going to get people's attention don't you yeah and that I think that links into what I was experiencing more on the micro level compared mm -hmm. to what you were seeing on the macro level Dan is it's become part of brand hygiene for a lot of brands so for thought that's unpacked. That's why I was disappointed in Pact, because I just expect it from them now. Mm -hmm. I don't need them to do a big commitment around something like net zero because they're not that kind of supplier. And I think that's probably what's happening on that macro playing field as well. Now it's just moving into kind of hygiene. And so it's quite hard to break through, but it's still quite new messaging for a lot of organisations. So they haven't worked out how to make it sit and, and really have impact. What excites you most about the sustainability conversations going on right now? Annie, you mentioned PACT. 
are there any others out there that are really getting it right to you? I think I was trying to think about that. I was going macro when I was thinking about this and thinking about what gets me excited. And I guess it is stuff that's really much bigger and likely to have a long, a more long-term sustained impact. So I was looking at that Textiles 2030 coalition that RAP have brokered. I think it's, what is it, 18 major fashion brands who have, have made all of those commitments. And it feels like coalitions are a good way to go because then if you're not in it, you're outside it and you look bad and it gathers a bit of momentum. But also the fact that RAP has brokered it and they're a really respected organisation with a good track record, it, it feels like there's something more solid because when you look at that compared with a, you know, H&M's frankly greenwashing attempt to look like they're selling eco lines. That feels much more. So that's kind of exciting that there's groups, you know, that the organisations like RAP that have existed on the perimeter are now coming in and working with major fast fashion fast fashion brands. That feels exciting. There needs to be a lot a lot more of that. I would say. Yeah, and I think for me, going back to Net Zero, so you know. A year ago, I was excited by all of the, the announcements. I am still excited that they're happening. But I guess what's actually exciting for me now is who are starting to see some brands showing that they're fulfilling that commitment and actually making some yeah. progress because it's very easy to come out with, we're going to do so-and-so by 2030 or 2040, but actually to show how you're going to get there and what, what impact you're going to do. So the one that stands out is uh, BT, I think, have said they've cut their emissions by 14% in the last 12 months, which... Um, I thought sounded pretty impressive, to be honest, for a company of that size. So that's the kind of stuff I'm really excited to see more of in the kind of coming uh, years, really. The actual kind of solid, accountable change. Yeah, decarbonisation. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and that it is happening at scale because for so long it's been such a niche. You know, as somebody who kind of worked in the campaigning environment movement in the 80s and 90s, one of the huge frustrations was that it was so niche. And it was so difficult to break through. And I mean, like when when Marks and Spencer started doing Plan B, it was like, hallelujah, you know, because finally somebody was taking it seriously. But that was a slow, slow burn. So like Dan says, it's now, you know, that people are actually posting results. It was strikingly looking at all those net zero commitments. I was kind of like somebody, some somebody some one of the gates needs to found something that's going to monitor everybody's commitments and hold people to account on it because there's a whole slew of big businesses who are saying we're going to achieve this by this and it's so easy to just slip past in the annual report that they missed it but there is another question as well and i don't know if this is something that we've kind of already covered in your previous answer but how sustainability marketing has kind of changed over the past 10 years yeah well even over the past 20 years and I mean I, th there's the whole piece about how corporate social responsibility seemed like a really exciting opportunity and very yeah. quickly when I was still working in the environment movement it became apparent that it was being shunted into you know it wasn't part of the business bottom line it wasn't anything to do with the um, external facing brand positioning yeah. it was all to do with kind of hygiene around HR and you know um, doing some nice charitable work and kind of putting it in the back room, mm. which is one of the ways that the environmental movement kind of split because some, some parts of the environmental movement were really positive about CSR and pursued it. And some a lot of other organisations and thinkers, Greenpeace amongst them said, this is just an excuse for greenwashing. We're not gonna get engaged with that. 
Um, and and now the whole the whole movement has changed really quite substantially around because it's mainstreamed because the problem with that was that it was just a nice bolt on and and that was very frustrating and it was very difficult and slippery to work with so until and it had to be part of the business bottom line and then and only then and hence the rise of purpose of course <laughs> only then did it become meaningful and real so it was it, it was a real switch and I think it's it didn't really happen until about 10 years ago. I think it's probably taken seriously by consumers as well, in the sense that there's seems to have been a real shift from brands kind of putting the onus on, on consumers to make these sustainable changes, you know, things like reduce, reuse, recycle. It's this expectation from people that brands are actually doing the heavy lifting. There's obviously been lots of uh, positives that have come from that directly and everyone, every time they sit at the table and have a meal are talking about whether or not something's vegan or where it's come from and is it sustainable. So the, the level of consciousness of sustainability is, is far above what it ever was before and that's a good thing. But actually at the time, it was a bit of a sinister move, I think, and it was trying to make sure that business could operate as usual. But now that we've got this heightened awareness, what we are seeing is that businesses now are being asked to do more. And actually, I, I do believe businesses are stepping up. And I think actually businesses are, are leading the way in, in, in many areas on this, which I think is uh, really exciting. But the main reason that's exciting is because obviously they have far more potential. And I'm talking about the big business here to have a, a really big impact on decarbonisation. As Dan says, you could have a big impact. We can't do it as consumers. Mm. But there's always a role for these little steps and small things that we do as individuals that change the way you do things. I can remember moving to London in 1984 and sharing a flat with a Swiss woman who said, you don't recycle. And I was like, don't be stupid. This is England, this is London. You couldn't do recycling here. Yeah. Well, where are we now? You know, what did I know? But, but you know, it changes the consciousness and you have to do that so that the consumers will go with the businesses, but they've got a lead now, not us. Mm. What you were saying, um, Annie, I think uh, about that sort of people-led stuff is a really interesting one because it feels like a lot of brands are kind of putting that at the forefront of their kind of creative stuff when it comes to their campaigns as well. So things like Patagonia, for example, um, their whole idea of an energy revolution in the UK is all community-led. There's a real kind of people focus. And what's really lovely about it is how doable it shows uh, the action to be and the fact that it's actually showing impact, but very much on a kind of a real life scale. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, as good agency, we're always reminding everybody we work with that the individual has to have a role in the brand story, that there has to be, you have to feel like you're stepping into a role in that. And obviously consumer action has to be accessible to everybody and it might be quite a small thing like plastic bags or it might be just choosing to shop in a particular way or a particular place but you know the variety of ways in which people can feel connected without feeling like they're you know joining extinction rebellion because most people are going to do that is really really important so there's that fine balance you know between yeah do big stuff but if it becomes detached from us as consumers then we're going to lose our sense of responsibility so there's a, a fine balance all the time I think we've got the um, the UN climate change conference at the end of the okay. year. So there's going to be a lot of climate change conversations. And as I said at the beginning, it's it's really all about how we cut through that noise. 
Mm -hmm. and have conversations that people will pay attention to and then off the back of that actually take action. Do you think there is a right approach to this? Is there one right approach? So I think I think for me, it, you know, the net, going back to the net zero announcements, you know, whether it's that or, or any other communications, the one thing that we talk about a lot of good and that we've all seen is that there's a sea of sameness when it comes to purposeful communications and sustainability communications. And the real challenge is how do you stand out? And I know that ITV uh, recently in their kind of backing business campaign, you know, highlighted people like Oatly who had their need help talking to dad about milk campaign, which I think did actually receive a bit of flack from um, dads at the time. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. Whilst, whilst it, humor isn't the only way to cut through, um, you know, the need to cut through is, is an imperative in order to get your message out. Because I do think there's just a lot of stuff that's being lost. And yeah, that it, 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 there is just a real sea of sameness. So looking for distinction and ownability that's right for your brand is key. Yeah, and I think there was that point, wasn't there, about humour and is it appropriate? I really enjoyed seeing the corn ad because I don't watch a huge amount of TV, so mm -hmm. I hadn't seen the corn ad. And I think it was so good. I watched it twice. Yeah, <laughs> it was... and you talk about it and you share it when it's funny, don't you? Like it, things like the Oatly campaign, it's the kind of stuff that's going to be shared on social media. And automatically from there, you're going to be able to generate conversations. So although, you know, this is an incredibly, it's probably the most serious issue we face, and as marketers, we deal with humour is kind of an interesting one to use, isn't it? Because you're taking this really serious issue. It's really interesting because it's it's analogous to a lot of the work that we do in fundraising, where mm. humour can be a very double-edged sword. You know, it can be great for engaging people, but it's not typically, you know, something that you would choose to use where you're raising funds because you know you you want to evoke sympathy or pity. Or, mm. and with climate, it's a huge serious issue, and you know you could become and people do <laughs> become quite depressed about it but you know there is a role for humor in making it as you say part of a conversation and acceptable and it's also I think a sign of the growing up of products like corn that they don't need to sort of I mean not that they've ever talked about their manufacturing process but you don't just have to focus on the sustainable or environmental credentials of the product or the ethical credentials of the product you can touch on it but the humour is what you're using now. And I think that's just like growing up. It's like what we've seen around depictions of, of um, disability. You know, you don't just sort of focus on the wheelchair. You, you, you show how somebody is living their life in a perfectly normal way. So it's, it feels like it's happening in advertising with that kind of message for those kind of products. I do also think there's something about you know, a, a lot of the communications appeals to a certain kind of middle class kind of person. And actually anything that we can do, to, you know, to engage different different audiences more broadly in the subject is really important. And I think if you just look at politics recently, it, it, you know, the, the working class, I'm not saying that they're not engaged with um, the cli climate change and things like that, but it's not as much of a priority for a lot of people. And actually what we need to do is reach out and say, how do we make this accessible? How do we make it relevant and important to different audiences? Because I do think there's a, a very worthy self-serving mm -hmm. nature that makes certain people feel very good about themselves, but actually doesn't really achieve a lot. Can you give anyone who, who is getting it right in that regard, though, Dan? Price is one way to make it more accessible. Another way is to make it feel less preachy. But I mean, a good example of price actually is Co-op, who you know have just made all their vegan food 
equal in price to the the meat equivalent so you know i do actually shop at co-op and i can tell you that there was a lot of vegan food in there that i wouldn't have bought i do also eat meat so before i sound like i'm (laughs) 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 claiming to be an angel but i do like vegan products as well but they are more expensive so they have now reviewed their whole range and have reduced the price and i think that's really um a good step towards making it more accessible i do think there's something about helping the individual understand where they can make the most impact in their life Have you seen, obviously there's the IKEA small stories, great impact, but they also had a campaign, uh, I think it's Fortune Favours the Frugal, product-led, and it showed um, a meteor full of crap coming down to earth to hit people. And as people were kind of walking, they had loads of different people in their homes, walking around using their IKEA products, bits of the meteor were kind of flying off. It was an interesting way of approaching it. And as you were saying, Dan, it's that sense of you as an individual being able to make the impact. I mean, the fact that IKEA is doing it, I know that there's obviously a lot of kind of conversation and debates about, you know, just how sustainable IKEA is. And having a, you know, a CSR ad essentially, um, I think that is product focused um, is a sort of, it's a smart move from them, but I guess it's, you know, it's how serious do you take it? Um, as the person watching it yeah I mean I've I've seen the ad and I I really like the ad I actually I mean talking about Ikea more broadly we talk about brands born with purpose or brands with purpose and I do think that uh, you know Ikea was never a purposeful brand by any means but example of a brand uh, born with purpose might be Patagonia you know they were originated from a purposeful reason but looking at someone like Ikea, I do think they are on the journey to actually re-evaluating their whole business. Mm. They are in fundamental changes around circular economy. Um, yes, they are still selling products, but I think they are on that journey to becoming more purposeful. Yes, there's lots they can do, but I have belief in their CEO, in their, their mm. business model and the, the way they operate, that they are making that change. And yes, they might not get everything right, but they're on the journey that I th- and I would hold them up as an example to other businesses who most of whom are at the very beginning of that journey of someone to kind of look to. So I thought we could end on a bit of positivity because I know it's really easy to feel a bit powerless or a bit overwhelmed um, when you think about this and particularly about the climate crisis as a whole. Um, so I wanted to ask you guys how you kind of rally yourself when you're feeling overwhelmed um, by this and if you have any kind of advice or, or words of wisdom to stop me spinning out of anxiety at 3am. <laughs> <laughs> the hugely positive thing for me is that it's not a niche agenda anymore. You know, being an environmentalist it was equated with, you know, people who weaved their own yoghurt and wore open toed sandals. And kind of- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and people were forever going, oh, you smoke, you eat meat. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, we're normal people. Um, but it was very, very difficult to get over that kind of perception of this living in a, not living in society, but being a kind of odd separatist thing. And so every day I'm cheered by the fact that all of those messages that used to only exist in 
Greenpeace communications and a kind of environmental movement that was somewhere over here related to society has just bled through everything. Um, but yeah, that makes me feel positive. It's it's everywhere. You can't avoid it anymore. And people and younger people are consuming these messages naturally dozens of times a day. An individual thing that I would say that could lift you up I would to someone like Christina Figueres, who wrote The Future We Choose with uh, Tom Rivet Karnak. So Christina Figueres is um, an ex-UN diplomat. I think her father is the president um, of Costa Rica, and she was central to the writing of the UN climate goals. But her book, I do remember, you know, and Tom's, but I do remember thinking, this is uplifting. We can do this. This is something that, you know, micro and macro individuals and businesses can work together to achieve. Annie, Dan, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Um, I think this is probably the biggest challenge we face in our work, but also our lives as a whole. Um, but as we've touched on today, it's not all doom and gloom. There's a lot of positive stuff happening and lots of positive action that we can all take that's gonna bring about a greener and ultimately better future. Um, so thanks so much guys. And thank you to our listeners for joining us too. Keep an eye out for the next episode and of course, like and subscribe and we'll see you next time. Bye.